Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the voice of manufacturing globally. My name is Tim Grady. I'm the host, and I am here with my co-host today, Lou Weiss. Lou, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Tim. Uh, I know we have some um, a lot of information to put out today, and our, our first guest has a hard stop at 125. So uh, we're going to do the, the postscript and the news uh, mid-show. But before you take over with uh, uh, Brad Holcomb of the Institute of Supply Management, I do want to make a retraction and an apology for a, a name flub-up that I did last week. I don't know if you recall, Tim. I did refer or make some wisecrack about Ted Cruz, and I referred to him as Tom Cruz. So I do want right. to apologize to Tom Cruz. <laughs> he probably does not want to be in Congress. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody wants to be in Congress. <laughs> uh, we want to sure. welcome Brad Holcomb to the show, who's committee chair of the Institute of Supply Management's Manufacturing Report on Business. Brad is kind enough to join us every month for the uh, new ISM report that he uh, he publishes with uh, the ISM. Brad, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's always great to, to be able to talk about this with your broad audience. Well, we certainly enjoy having you, and we are you know, Lou and I are kind of staring at this number number bumping in the uh, the low 50s. I know it's above 50, so it represents expansion. How are you feeling about this report, Brad? Well, I'm I'm feeling honestly a little bit uh, mixed, um, and, and you know we'll we'll talk about that as as we go along. Uh, you know this this whole year has been. Know, kind of off to a slower start than, than most of us either had expected or, or hoped for. Uh, we, last month we got back to 53.5, same number as in January, you know, and it kind of felt like we were positioned to, you know, to continue to move up in terms of the growth rate. But we're back down eight-tenths of a percentage point to 52.7. So we're still growing growing at 30, for 31 consecutive months, but at a slower rate uh, than last month. Um, so that's a little bit perhaps disappointing to some, but let's look uh, in more detail because there are some really bright spots here uh, and some terrific information for your audience. Uh, the, the biggest bright spot for me is new orders at 56.5 a new high for the year up a half a point from last month so it's growing faster and growing for 32 consecutive months and new orders um, in terms of the list of our 18 industry sectors 10 are reporting growth and i believe six are reporting uh, some degree of, of contraction and those 10 industries reporting growth, uh, among them are three of the top four, the largest four industry sectors that we cover. Um, 
starting with uh, chemical products, which is the second largest. Uh, food, beverage, and tobacco products is the third largest industry that we cover. And the fourth largest is uh, petroleum and coal products, which to some is surprising to be on the list of industries uh, reporting growth, but nevertheless uh, they are. And of course, fabricated metal products uh, is on the list as well as, as several others. So it's a good strong list of industries growing. Uh, of the six that are reporting a, a decrease to some degree in new orders in July are primary metals, uh, machinery, plastic and rubber products, and then the largest industry that we cover, computer and electronic products, and then finally transportation equipment. So there's uh, there's there's some things to, uh, to to celebrate and other things to to wonder about, I suppose. But overall, again, it all adds up to the highest uh, new orders level that we've seen all year. And of course, we know that new orders drives this system. You think they're driving new orders? Is that aircraft, which is a particularly volatile industry, or, or is it some other industries that are coming on strong? Well, it's it's a it's a lot of different things. Um, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's the ones that I mentioned. You know, it's chemical products. It's it's food, beverage, and tobacco, which you know people are are eating and eating well. It's uh, uh, textile mills, paper products, uh, apparel, leather, and allied products. A lot of these things uh, can directly or indirectly relate to the automotive industry, which continues to, to be strong. And I think if it weren't for the auto companies uh, being so strong, you know, we'd have a little different story here. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and what are your respondents saying in terms of new orders? If you got any comments along those lines? Well, there's a, there's a couple of comments that uh, that at least indirectly pertain to, to new orders. Uh, one from the furniture and related products in, industry, which of course relates uh, itself to to housing, uh, to commercial. Uh, building as well, and their direct quote is very short and sweet. Business continues to be strong. Um, the second one is from the machinery industry that uh, speaks to where we're at with the West Coast port situation clearing up. From their perspective, inbound logistics are almost back to normal is the quote. Uh, so there's some some good positive vibe and, and news uh, from those two industries. Uh, other than that, quite honestly, the the, the 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 quotes that I've selected are are a little bit uh, downbeat or expressing some concern. For example, uh, the first uh, couple of quotes, the. Um, Avion influenza fears in the poultry industry are killing exports. 
and we'll talk more about exports, but that's that industry has gone through a, a severe uh, bit, bit of pain with this avian influenza, for sure. And then the, but that's that's fairly fairly specific. More broadly, a quote uh, from the petroleum and coal products industries. The oil price decline continues to negatively impact oil and gas industry in North America as many projects are not economically viable. It continues. Oil and gas jobs outlook is in retrenchment and petroleum is, uh, is but is positive from a margin perspective, but the focus is on safe cost containment. Uh, so the oil price decline you know, continues to, to impact, if not hammer, that particular industry. Nevertheless, as we've talked, the reduction in price is, is a benefit to the rest of manufacturing in two ways. One, it costs less to run our plants. And number two, and we'll talk more about this as well, the price of raw materials, starting with petroleum-related products, is down again and that helps uh, open up margins and helps make our manufacturing companies even more financially strong. Uh, Brad, just for the sake of our listeners, uh, could you explain to them uh, regarding seasonal adjustments? Because I know that roughly 10% of the population is on vacation in July and August, and how does that affect the uh, your bottom line numbers? Right. That's, that's a great question. Uh, each year in January, uh, we work with uh, statistical uh, experts with a certain uh, process to seasonalize uh, our series. And we seasonalize four of the five specific components of the PMI, including new orders, production, employment, and supplier deliveries. And by doing that, uh, we take the seasonal effects. In other words, the software knows when summer's coming, when winter's coming, when Christmas is, when other holidays, etc. And it takes that out of the series such that at the end of the day, each month should look like every other month. Um, and, and so we, we should look past the fact that it's summertime and people are on vacation because the numbers already account for that. Good, thanks. Uh, Brad, uh, every report that you come out with each month has got a commodities report up and down in price. Uh, what's unusual right. this month about that? Well, there is something quite unusual, and that is that uh, there are no commodities listed that are up in price but there are several that are down in price, including, you know, most of the metals because it takes, you know, less energy and it's less costly, therefore, to, to, to produce uh, uh, the metals products like aluminum, brass, copper, nickel, steel. They're all on the list down in price, but absolutely none up in price, which I can't personally remember a month when that was the case. Uh, so... It's, it's great insight uh, into the details of what's going on with price to look at these lists. Uh, the other 
uh, associated list we have is commodities in short supply and eggs is on there for the second consecutive month and we've already talked about the avian flu uh, impact on that particular industry yes i was just reading in the today's newspaper that uh Hugging and kissing chickens may be hazardous to your health. I, I couldn't believe it actually made it as a news story, but nonetheless, it was in there. Um, and they're prizing journalists. Brad, what's going on in production? It seems to be fairly strong. Yes, uh, a very interesting number, and let's let's pick that one apart. It's up two full percentage points from last month to 56.0 so it's growing faster and uh, if you'll if you'll drop down on this same uh, chart manufacturing at a glance you'll see that the backlog of orders has correspondingly dropped four and a half percentage points so manufacturing production has been uh, at, at a high level but not only taking care of of new orders but also sort of chewing into the backlog of orders. And, and here's the reason why. Uh, manufacturing will, will always try to, to level production, if you will, that is to, to use all of the available labor and assets uh, to employ uh, you know, as, as, as much as possible. So there was a strong level of employment of uh, employment growth last month when we saw that 55.5 number in employment. So we added people to the ranks. It's showing up this month in strong production, but there weren't enough new orders uh, to satisfy that production appetite. And so they chewed into the backlog of orders uh, to a considerable degree. Now, I know that in looking at some of the reports coming out talking about your ISM data, they're indicating that your uh, data in would would forecast a good jobs report for Friday that I guess it's due out on Friday. Uh, but you're yeah. showing a decrease here of 2.8 percentage points. Help our listeners understand, if you can, what you're seeing in employment. Uh, yes. So... Jumping back once again to, to last month, the number uh, for our employment index was 55.5, which was a really nice, healthy number in this particular environment of you know, rather, rather slow growth for the year so far. So that was, that was a good number. But now we're growing slower this month, down 2.8 percentage points to 52.7. Nevertheless, still growing, and we do correlations each each January as well as we do our seasonals. We we correlate these series with certain government statistics. In the case of employment, we correlate that with the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, corresponding series on factory employment. And what we find is that. Um, any time that our number is above 50.6, and we're well above that, it's generally consistent with an increase in the Bureau of Labor Statistics data on manufacturing employment. So, uh, you know, if, 
if that holds true this month, as it does in general, uh, we should see an increase in the BLS uh, numbers later on in the week. Great, thank you. Um, now, supplier deliveries. I want to talk about supplier deliveries, Brad, and then I want to kind of uh, uh, sum up the first five sections uh, and have you give us a comparison of how we're doing versus how your forecast forecasts yes. how we would be doing both in December and uh, in May. So, uh, what's happening in supplier deliveries, and and then how does this look on balance for the for the year? Yeah, yeah. Well, supplier deliveries, I, I get actually a lot of questions about that. Uh, it's been below 50 for two months in a row, um, you know, in a, in a robust uh, economy, in a robust manufacturing situation. It would be above 50 um, because that, that means that suppliers are having a hard time sort of keeping up with manufacturing. And the fact that it's below 50, people speculate on, you know, a slowdown in, in manufacturing. I don't agree with that, and, and here's why. I think that this has a lot to do with the West Coast port situation uh, having now been, been largely resolved and the pipeline opened up because we import a lot of raw materials and subassemblies you know, a lot of that comes through the West Coast port. You know, we we talked about a comment already uh, about that, that logistics are almost back to normal. That being the case, the raw materials pipeline uh, has opened up to allow our suppliers to deliver those raw materials and inputs faster to the manufacturing companies. And I think that's what's going on for the last uh, two consecutive months. It, like every other number, is a number to watch uh, month by month as we go forward. Um, but I, I personally don't think that, that that has anything to do with a, you know, a general slowdown in manufacturing. You know, quite the opposite, the fact that the PMI itself is above 50 and has been for 31 consecutive months means that we're growing. And before we touch on the uh, on the report as how it looks for the year, I, I guess we should bring in that fifth uh, component that the PMI is uh, right. is calculated from, and that's inventories. And inventories that's seem right. to be down pretty low. Well, they're down uh, three and a half percentage points from a, a pretty strong number last month of, of 53. So it is contracting uh, this month, but it's just a half a point below that 50 mark at 49 and a half. So well within normal bounds. But I, I think also what's, what, you know, what's going on there is that uh, we've talked about production and how, uh, how strong it was this last month. Uh, it's eaten into inventories on hand by doing so. And our inventory number uh, is reflective of, of that strong production. Uh, that produced against new orders as well as the backlog of orders. So definitely nothing to, to be concerned about there. Um, and, again, we'll watch that month by month. But it's just a touch below 50 at this point. Uh, 
Brad, explain to me and our listeners the difference in uh, the inventory and the customer inventories. Uh, right. There, there, there seems to be a significant uh, difference there. And frankly, as a uh, raw materials supplier and producer, as we are, I love it when our customers' inventories are low because, I mean, they got to buy soon. Absolutely. So. Yeah. So, so the difference between our two inventories indexes when we uh, when we list just inventories that means raw materials and commodities uh, and inputs into manufacturing and you know, we've already talked about that on the other hand when we say customers inventories that's specifically finished goods that could be anywhere from the end of our manufacturing operation in the in the outbound logistics uh, holding area, you know, to the truck, to in the customer's uh, possession. So when it's below 50, we say that it's too low. And when it's at 44, it's considerably too low. And just as you uh, alluded to, that suggests an appetite for our customers to restock their shelves of finished goods products. And in this environment, uh, that's a good thing. Okay. Now, Brad, we're running up against uh, your hard stop here at uh, 25 minutes after the hour. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, exports and imports and how they're doing, because you mentioned those at the top of the hour, yeah. and then how this whole report is looking for you know, uh, compared to your annual forecast and your annual update. Sure, sure. You know, exports and imports is, is always, you know, very interesting uh, for us to look at. They are not, uh, as listed, a direct input to the PMI. We carry them separately, but, of course, you know, indirectly, it's it, it's all in the, in the mix. Exports is... Uh, contracting for the second consecutive month and this is this is related to a couple of things the continuing strong dollar from an overseas perspective uh, has people you know holding on to to their pocketbooks a little bit but also uh, the uncertainties with respect to to China who reported a you know a very low you know, manufacturing PMI of 47.8, and, and we all read the headlines about, you know, China, you know, kind of the ups and downs, uh, not to mention Europe. So these, let me just characterize those as uncertainties, which I believe will get resolved, but there's still uncertainties, and that's showing up, I believe, in our exports number, which is exports of finished goods, uh, products from the U.S. to our overseas customers. Uh, imports, on the other hand, is importing largely raw materials and subassemblies. Uh, that is at 52, you know, nicely over 50, even though it's down one and a half percentage points from last time. You know, I'll call that normal variation. Um, price works in our favor in terms of the price of the dollar in the case of imports, uh, and that has been growing for 30 consecutive months. So uh, imports and exports, that's what's going on there. In terms of 
something else I'd like to touch on quickly, and that is prices. Prices of raw materials is at 44, down 5.5 percentage points. Prices decreasing for nine consecutive months. You know, folks, this is largely about, if not exclusively, the decline in oil prices that continues. Uh, not sure we've seen bottom yet, um, but it's remarkable to have uh, prices uh, down for, for nine consecutive months. Uh, you asked me to comment on the annual forecast. Uh, we did forecast a very, very modest uh, increase in prices overall for the year. It looks like we're very much on track with that. Uh, we also forecast a 3.5% revenue growth when we tuned up our forecast in May and delivered that from, uh, from Phoenix during the ISM conference. Um, I think we're roughly on track for that. Uh, because our our correlations would suggest that a PMI that we're posting for July, 52.7, corresponds to a 3% increase in real GDP. So there's a half a percent difference uh, when you compare that with our revenue growth expectation of 3.5%. Uh, also, the January through July average PMI is 52.6, almost identical to what we're seeing in July, also corresponds to a 3% increase in real gross domestic product. And that's the rate that, uh, that we believe that we're on uh, at this point. Well, Brad, let's, thank let's you for remember, taking the time to just, just a final, yeah, my pleasure. Just well, a final comment. Let's remember that we're just now posting the first month of the last half of 2015. So let's take this as a data point um, and, uh, and follow it and track it month by month as we go along to see where it goes from here. Great. Uh, Brad, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate you being on our show. My pleasure, always. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you as take well. Take care. Bye-bye. And, uh, Lou, back to you. We've got a, a postscript to do from last week's show, and then there's some interesting news articles kind of floating around. What have you got on your docket? Well, do the postscript, but as far as the news is concerned, I would need another hour myself. Uh, but <laughs> let's see how I fare. Last week we had the um, uh, green manufacturing uh, and we had uh, two gentlemen on. Uh, one is Danny Mishak. Of, he's a managing director and co-owner of Selfco, selfco.com. Uh, Kate Bachman, who's the editor of Sustainable Manufacturing Network. Um, and David Podmyrski, who's the chief sustainability officer of Earth Color, which is earthcolor.com. And uh, talked a lot about... Uh, the engagement of uh, green manufacturing environmentally and the practices uh, through cleaner manufacturing processes, uh, more efficient resource uh, management, and uh, measurable reduction in uh, waste and pollution, which all of this, uh, as a looking at it from a uh, financial standpoint, uh, certainly does add to the bottom line. And in order to uh, 
institute these uh, programs, the dollar investment is not that high. Uh, certainly something that I would highly recommend uh, all our listeners and manufacturers to tune into last week's show and uh, kind of get a feel for uh, green manufacturing. Uh, yeah, one of the interesting comments that came out of that show, Lou, was that green produces green. So the investment's not that high, but it does produce dollars fairly quickly on the other side. Yeah, the return on investment is not that long. Uh, as far as the news this week, um, unfortunately, uh, XM Bank is uh, being uh, put out to dry until Congress comes back from their well-deserved and uh, welcome vacations. Uh, so nothing's going to happen on that. Right now, they're unfunded. Uh, the Iran deal, I don't want to talk about. Uh, the power plant rules that uh, President Obama brought up uh, yesterday is too new for us to poke sticks at and too new for us to really know what it's all about. But there are a lot of people that are uh, upset with it. Manufacturers are going to be upset with it because it's going to cause increased costs, so they say. And But we'll see how that uh, plays out. It certainly seems... Um, little too little bit too late and uh we will see how he, Miss, mr obama handles this um we have uh, oh there's an interesting one about maryland it has something to do with uh the planet heating up it seems as though the state of maryland is sinking is that correct jim yes the area the area of washington dc which was puffed up during the last ice age of some eight feet is now receding vertically south. Is it possible that the sinkhole will take D.C. with the state of Maryland? Any luck at all. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll see how that plays out as well. Um, I think that's about it, uh, Tim. Uh, there's so much going, really going on in the news uh, uh, ozone uh, regulations they want to uh, address and car emissions and uh, it just goes on and on and on and uh, let's see if our Congress will do anything to fix them right well we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be back with Professor Adriana Sanford discussing the Dodd-Frank Act but now a commercial break Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO Supplies. 
repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. In this half hour, we're going to be talking about the Dodd-Frank Act. We have with us our senior international correspondent, Adriana Sanford, who holds a Juris Doctoral Dual LLM in Tax and International Comparative Law. She's a Lincoln Professor of Global Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Clinical Associate Professor of Law and Business Ethics at Arizona State University. Welcome, Dr. Sanford. Thank you. Uh, question, Dr. Sanford, a quick explanation for our audience. Dodd-Frank and the whistleblower situation. What is it? Why was it created? Sure. The, the Dodd, what we call Dodd-Frank is actually Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform and consumer protection. Uh, the, the act was actually made into federal law on July 21st, 2010. And Dodd-Frank basically has... A, it has provisions for corporate governance and executive compensation and disclosure provisions. But on top of that, it also set forth provisions for a whistleblower program. And that whistleblower, the SEC, adopted rules for that whistleblower program in May 2011. And that has okay. brought us to where we are today and why, you know, the implications of what this Dodd-Frank whistleblower program has had on multinationals and why individuals choose to blow the whistle. Let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Why does an individual choose to blow the whistle? Well, the, the issue is the, if you look at the sources it's, and the statistics, it's actually not what people think. A lot of individuals think that the reason is the substantial monetary reward that comes under this new SEC whistleblower program. Uh, the whistleblower program is for the publicly traded companies. It's a way for the SEC to obtain information on fraud uh, and help stop fraud against the government. So it is for publicly traded companies, not private companies. And to be eligible for the reward, you need to be able to provide the office of the whistleblower, which is the, within the SEC. You need to provide them high-quality original information that actually leads the SEC to an enforcement action. And that action, it has to have over a million dollars in sanctions. So if sanctions are ordered that are over a million dollars, the whistleblower can potentially make 10 to 30% of the money that's collected. So let's talk about manufacturing for a moment, uh, Dr. Sanford, and whistleblowers. 
there's a whistleblower and a major manufacturer. In fact, uh, the latest report I read on the F-35C, the most advanced fighter jet in the world, there's some 1,800-plus counterfeit parts they found in the supply chain. We don't know why they're in there. But assume that the whistleblower stumbles across this in a manufacturer. What are they looking at? Are they looking at the whole enchilada, or are they just looking at uh, they stumbled over something and they're not quite sure what they're looking at? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. It depends. The answer depends on who that person is, what their position is. They may be seeing a tip of an iceberg. They may be seeing the whole iceberg. And that makes a big difference. They, According to the reports, the, the sources, the inside the mind of the whistleblower, they say that 92% of reports actually go inside the company first. These are individuals, employees that go up the chain and say, hey, there's something wrong. And out of those, only 20% ever choose to report outside the company. So you can imagine there's a lot going on that no one really knows about, and it's internal. Those that choose to report, let's say you don't see the tip of the iceberg. Let's say you see the entire iceberg. Well, those that report that actually go outside the company are those, 82% of those report the crime if it was big enough so they saw the iceberg or if keeping quiet would actually harm someone. It would harm the shareholders, it might harm the company, or it might harm the consumers or the public at large. So we're talking about individuals that can't stay quiet for whatever reason. We're not talking about somebody who's looking for a monetary reward, but rather the majority of those that actually choose to come out and speak about this or report it are individuals that are concerned. Maybe there's a cover-up, or maybe this is creating personal liability on them because of the multi-jurisdictional requirements from the laws of other countries where they must report. Uh, speak to for a moment the multi-jurisdictional requirements from other countries where they must report. What what is involved there? Right. The issue there is that what we're seeing in this era is a growing convergence. We have simultaneous prosecutions. The growing convergence is we're not only looking now at an issue of maybe counterfeit. We're looking at why is the counterfeiting taking place. Is it supporting terrorist financing? If it is, you've got an issue there, you have a money laundering issue. If you have a money laundering issue and you happen to be in Singapore, Malaysia, or the Philippines, their laws require you to report or you have your very own money laundering offense. If we're dealing with another type of corruption, maybe we're dealing with bribery. We have the extraterritorial reach of the FCPA if you're a U.S. company. We have the U.K. Bribery Act. But also we have 41 other countries under the OECD that have agreed to change, amend, or create their own laws for corruption. Brazil just drafted theirs, and it is different from ours. So their extraterritorial effect and what it states will impact our employees personally as well as the companies. So we are seeing a lot of multinationals that are getting very stressed out about this. We're seeing a lot of employees that feel that maybe they will have personal liability. And you're also seeing within the company a lot of new positions. Companies are struggling and basically reorganizing in a way to protect themselves, in a way to better report up the chain and maybe handle these situations. 
A good example is, you know, the information security has now expanded to cybersecurity. Well, their role is more complex, and we're now looking at them not only from the information security standpoint, but they're looking at the business risk. You know, a company, if the employees are quiet or don't take, you know, notice of what's going on, someone can come in and take not only your data, you know, but also your R&D, you know, personal data from your your customers, your IP information, your formulas, and at the end of the day, you, you can go bankrupt. Or you can have a whistleblower in there that comes forward because they're concerned about their liability. Uh, Dr. Sanford, when we're talking about manufacturing, of course, we're talking about everything that comes into the manufacturing operation and in uh, receiving, uh, everything in the supply chain professional sources from somewhere, all the way up to the C-suite where the corporate executives are. And you've mentioned on several of our shows that you could end up with your own money laundering offense leveled against you or other charges leveled against you. Does that extend beyond the corporate officer role down to where a supply chain manager or supply chain person might have personal risk? Personal risk is coming from new legislation being drafted everywhere. We have personal risk for our third-party vendors, for our, for our suppliers, uh, with regard to human right-related risks right now. That's coming up here in the U.S. and it's in the, in the, uh, in the U.K. as well. We're also seeing it in, in cybersecurity. We're seeing it can range, you know, your third-party vendors can range from being global companies to very small companies. And what happens there affects the multinational that they're working for. So we need to make sure that the policies that are being adopted by our company and by our third-party vendors, our suppliers, are properly being implemented. A lot of times they will copy the policy of the multinational, especially if you're a small company. But you need to make sure that everyone within that company, including the board members, including top management, actually are on board. And if they're not on board, it won't work. This sometimes creates a pushback, and you need a culture change in order to have this work. So suppose for a moment that I am an employee and I've discovered what I, I don't know if it's the tip of the iceberg or I don't know, or if it's the whole iceberg, and I'm getting this kind of pushback. As I try to move it up the chain of command and say, hey, I think we have a problem here, I'm getting pushback. What do I do? That's a good question. Well, you've been hired to do a specific job. You've discovered something. You've discovered the tip of the iceberg, or maybe you've discovered something a heck of a lot bigger. You discovered the iceberg. Your job is what you've been hired to do. You don't know what to do. You, you have not been hired to be a whistleblower. So it's like, you know, somebody who is a surgeon and works on eyes all of a sudden asking them to do something completely different. You need to hire and retain your own counsel, somebody separate from the company, that you can go to who specializes in this area and can advise you. That's step one, because only then do you know that you're getting appropriate advice. The in-house counsel is somebody you can talk to as well, depending on what you're seeing. Depending, if, if you've got the iceberg in your hand, I suggest you immediately go and retain counsel, outside legal counsel. Some employees, what they do is they feel more comfortable, if their boss is not listening to them, is they will report it to HR. 
The problem with reporting it to HR is HR doesn't know how to manage these issues. They don't understand money laundering. They don't understand what they have in their hands. So a new space is the IHRM, International Human Resource Manager. That person is trained usually in law or maybe a psychologist or in some other area other than HR. And their specific function is basically to understand these complaints that are coming in and be able to handle them. You need somebody in there that can actually analyze the big picture and report the problems in a way that will actually help enhance the reporting, educate the employees. You know, maybe you need to make sure that you're instituting a process where anonymous reporting of tips comes through and a well-organized system to assess them. Some companies don't know how to do that. IHRM is one strategic role. Uh, there are many others. The Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, uh, the CISO, which is for information uh, security and, and cybersecurity. That's a very hot position right now. But all of these new strategic roles are important. Uh, data protection. We've talked about the Data Protection Officer. If you're dealing with the EU or you're monitoring EU citizens, or you are interested in marketing to those EU citizens online, you're going to need a data protection officer if you've got a big company. Uh, Dr. Sanford, if I'm an employee and I discover what I think is either the tip of the iceberg or the iceberg, um, I was just reading an article in the newspaper today about a gal who, in fact, stumbled across something, reported it up the chain of command, and within a week or two, they started writing negative comments in her file. They downgraded her pay. They gave her lousy shifts. And eventually, she left the company. Um, what do I do to protect my primary income if I stumble across something that I feel like I, I'm going to have to blow the whistle on? Well, this is, this is a very big concern, actually. And what the ratios show is that one in five individuals experience retaliation after reporting. So one in three don't report internally because they fear that retaliation. So what I would suggest, depending on how high up you are, because if you're a senior executive, there are certain steps you must take or you have your very own personal liability. But let's say you're, you're further down. You're a junior employee or you're the scapegoat. You're the person that they're telling to change the numbers or to raise the numbers and you don't feel comfortable. What I suggest you do is you join a charity, Boys and Girls Club, Red Cross, the American Red Cross, or many different charities, and you ask for letters of recommendation. You go around to all of your bosses and you say, hey, can I get a recommendation? Um, you know, I'd like to submit it here. And you go ahead and you submit it there and you join those groups. But then you also have those letters of recommendation that will help you leave that company. And if possible, you leave the company and then you blow the whistle. I've seen people do that, and it's a lot safer for their career. The issue is if it's something bad, you have to report it. The question is how and when, and the fear of retaliation is great. And unfortunately, there's not much that some people can do. But if you're not senior, there may be a way for you to quickly leave. But that information is important, and especially today given our issues with global security. You may not know what you have in your hands. You may not understand that piece of the puzzle. And only the regulators can see it. But the problem is the regulators don't have that internal roadmap. So unless this information is shared, 
they can't put the puzzle together, which is one of the reasons the government is now incentivizing whistleblowers, because they know that whistleblowers have, you know, and whistleblowers are not necessarily employees. They can be third-party consultants. They can be contractors. But they're individuals that have the ability to see the picture with a bird's-eye view and give that information. Now, Dr. Sanford, I understand there is a federal office of the whistleblower. What are they and how do they help us? Sure. There is, it's called the Office of the Whistleblower, and the chief right now is Sean McKessie. And what, basically, you can look him up online, and there's a little place where you can click to report, and you can make your report, and they can follow up. There are also other agencies where you can report. You can report to the FBI. You can make a formal report uh, to the DOJ. But, again, before you start doing this, I would suggest that you retain counsel to make sure that you follow the correct steps and you've taken, you know, the right steps to protect yourself especially if you're in a senior position. You want to get that counsel uh, advising you as soon as possible. Now, if we're dealing with flood money, if we're dealing with with issues where a company is actually um, involved in illegal transactions or illegal illegal projects uh, and it involves our home protection, that's another story then you need to quickly get to the FBI. Okay. Dr. Sanford, you've referred several times to uh, retaining legal counsel. I assume I'm not going to run out to my real estate attorney and explain my problem. What kind of background does this lawyer need to have? Okay, that, the background of this counsel, you have to check very carefully. Just in the same way that if you're going to go in for heart surgery, you're not going to pick them out of the phone book. The same thing goes for when you're retaining someone to actually protect you and uh, advise you on whistleblowing. There are whistleblowers. There's a lot of different um, attorneys out there that will actually brag and will tell you, you know, how good they are at this. Just in the same way that you're going to look for the very best heart surgeon, you're going to have to do your research. Talk to your friends, talk to family, and try to find the best person out there. A lot of times someone will tell you, yes, I can advise you. Yes, I can represent you. Yes, I understand the issues. Well, that's step one. If you find somebody with a reputable reputation and uh, a big reputation, that's good. But then you you can't just let them have the case. You have to put things in writing and say, this is number one priority. This is what I want to do. Because sometimes what will happen is they may know the company and settle and settle your case without your involvement and all of a sudden you're getting a monetary reward when really the reason you're blowing the whistle was not for that reason you didn't want to settle you wanted to bring this information up because it's going to hurt the company or it's going to hurt the shareholders or it's hurting the public so that's that's the main concern that i see is make sure that when you retain counsel you retain control of your own case and do these tend to be corporate attorneys or people with with corporate law as their uh, specialty? Well, they're going to have to understand corporate law because they're going to have to understand the fraud. They should also be individuals that understand the big picture, that can understand the global implications. That's what we talk about, you know, looking at this from a global perspective. And if your attorney is not somebody that really understands 
multi-jurisdictional issues, you've got the wrong person if you're dealing in a multi-jurisdictional context. Now, if I am an employee and I'm just a line manager, I, I have no corporate title, I'm not a senior or an executive with the company, do I have any liability if I keep my mouth shut and later it all gets exposed? You could in other countries. It depends on the situation. Yeah. And, and the issue there is if you know and you're quiet, not only could you get fired, you could get arrested. There was a case in 2007, October 2007, where a company in Brazil, you had 93 search warrants, you had over 600 federal police and tax ID agents that went into that company and started making arrests because of tax evasion. You don't want to be put in that predicament. You don't want to go through that. Whether or not you're released later is a different story. That whole experience um, can be traumatizing. So you want to make sure you're doing your homework. You want to make sure that you know. And, you know, it may have been tax evasion, but in other cases it could be tied to money laundering. It could be tied to terrorism. It could be tied in so many other ways. So you've got to be careful. Now, Dr. Sanford, is there any particular uh, group of people within an organization that, where this tends to uh, – be exposed the most frequently, you know, supply chain or senior executives, or is it just all over the board? It's all over the board, but your senior executives are always exposed because they need to know what's going on in their company. And to the extent they don't, they're still liable. So this is one of the biggest concerns that multinationals have, especially when the laws in different countries are changing. They're constantly changing. So having a general counsel does not necessarily mean that you're protected. That general counsel needs to frequently be advised as to what laws have changed where and how that affects their company. Those employees need to be trained to make sure that they're complying with the new laws. And this is, you know, a, a problem because sometimes the process and the system is not working correctly and you don't find out until there's a reportable event. A good example was the best. A good example was the best practices, or the well, I wouldn't say they were the best practices, but they were the common practice in Brazil. All of a sudden, they changed, the laws changed, and you had a lot of employees that got into trouble. Okay, Dr. So Stanford, is there? <laughs> I'm sorry. Is go there ahead. any? Is there any? Uh, international body uh, you know I feel like a, a Star Trek fan in the United Federation of Planets uh, that's looking at the corporate laws and trying to get the corporate laws of 40 or 50 different countries in line with one another there are a lot of groups out there that are trying right now to do this this is hot um, we're seeing a lot of changes right now. As I mentioned in the last show, the Microsoft case brought to light the multi-jurisdictional conflict that exists between the EU and the U.S. with regards to turning over data. And we understand that the U.S. and the EU are going to revise or amend their agreements so that there are no conflicts in the future. That has not happened yet, but I'm told it will, they will, they will be working on this. But this is popping up in a lot of different areas. 
the International Enforcement Law Reporter um, is a good source to go to to get information on what is hot and what is changing. Bruce Garris is the editor of the International Enforcement Law Reporter. That's a good source. There are a few other sources out there. I know the Institute for Supply Management also has magazines. It has the Insight Supply Management magazine. It has the forward scan for their corporate supply chain leaders. And those, you know, that's a corporate program. Those also help you stay on top of certain issues. But there's not one source. And you just have to realize and you have to be careful where you step and be aware that things may be changing. Uh, Professor, you you brought up uh, about Microsoft, and a couple months ago we had a, a, a show with you about the Microsoft and the uh, the Dublin email issue. Is and you did just brought it up as well. Are they making any major progress on that? Well, we're still I mean, waiting. We're it's still in the process. So, but everybody has their eye on it, and and the good news is that we realize that this is a problem. So. Amazon, uh, Verizon, Cisco, all these multinationals feel better about it because we now know that there's an issue and the governments are going to be taking a look at it and trying to work together so that we can actually come up with an approach. They may be differing approaches, but we all want global security. And if we can come together and sit at the table and draft something that our multinationals can use, this is one less problem, one less legal or ethical dilemma our executives. But if you're going okay. to be doing spring cleaning, remember, it's data protection, it's money laundering issues, it's it deals with counterfeiting. So if you're doing spring cleaning in your company, remember all these are strategic positions, a lot of new and diverse legislation out there. So you might think of hiring some individuals to that are tailored, that specifically tr- are trained in these areas and can help manage your company. Well, we want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Sanford for joining us today in this discussion about uh, whistleblowing and, and updating us on the, the Microsoft Dublin email situation. Dr. Sanford, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you as well. And, and Lou, what's happening next week in terms of our show? Well, we have uh, next week uh, remanufacturing, uh, and we have uh, two guests, uh, John DeSharoon, of Caterpillar and Dr. Nabil Nasser, who is the uh, Associate Provost and Director of the Galisano Institute for Sustainability to discuss manufacturing role in our global economy. Uh, Tends to be an interesting show, and uh, we're glad to have them all there. So next week at uh, 1 o'clock on Tuesday uh, at mfgtalkradio.com that's where you'll find us great and that wraps us up for today's show of manufacturing talk radio we appreciate the opportunity to be the voice of manufacturing globally and hope that you'll tune in and listen to us again next week thank you for listening thanks for joining us on manufacturing talk radio you can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.